You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. We'll read John 3, 1 through 16 or follow along on the screen. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Right. Good morning. You may be seated. Uh, we do have Redemption Hill kids this morning for ages 2 to 4, and then also uh, 5 to 9. So if that serves you, you may go right now. Looks like Jen, thank you for serving. Leah, Aaron, thank you for serving our kids this morning. We also have um, totes in the hallway along with kids' sermon notes. So bring those sermon notes up to me afterwards, kids. If your parents allow for it, I got a sucker for you. This morning, I have uh, one of the joys of, of preaching what is one of my favorite passages in the Bible? Uh, it's what Andy just read. It's one of my favorite stories for multiple reasons. First, I remember reading John 3, verses 1 to 16, and, and you know, the entire chapter of John, many years ago, and, and oddly kind of identifying with Nicodemus. I identified with Nicodemus because I, I grew up in a religious home, like I went to, I was group Catholic, so I went to mass every Sunday and occasionally in the middle of the week. Uh, I was an altar boy, you know, well into high school. And in fourth grade, my mom swore that I was going to be a priest, and she got it kind of half right, not quite, but you know. But there came a point as the years went by, I began to ask questions about the Catholic faith and Christianity more broadly. There came a point where 
I started to seek a more profound understanding of faith in general, right? Pick your religion. Spirituality. I went from asking questions about what it means to be a good person to what does it mean to be in this relationship with God? What does it mean to be saved? I went from thinking about not going to hell to looking at, to looking at what does it mean to be forgiven of my sin? Long story short, I, I realized I was trying to understand God, but I was looking at God from the wrong perspective. I was asking these, this set of questions when in reality I should be asking that, that set of questions over there. I had to first ask questions about relationship before, you know, right and wrong. I like this story about Jesus and Nicodemus because Nicodemus seems to approach Jesus with a, a sense of vulnerability. That's the way I read it. I'm going to make my case for that here in a moment. He comes to Jesus with a sense of even admiration. And he approaches Jesus far from the kingdom. Jesus sees Nicodemus. Jesus sees his heart. And Jesus knows that Nicodemus needs more than the right words to say. Nicodemus needs more than doing that right ritual, that Jewish ritual, every single week. He needs more than that. What Nicodemus needs is for the living God to cause a radical transformation of the heart. That's what Nicodemus needs. I mean, growing up, I could, this is the way we sit it in the Catholic world, because we have to kneel and stand and sit and kneel and stand and sit. You can do all that all you want, you know, all day long. But that doesn't save you. Nicodemus could do all the right things, but that doesn't save him. He needs a radical transformation in the heart, in his heart. He needs to be saturated with the grace and mercy of Christ, which flows from the love of God. So I love this story because of what Nicodemus seems to represent. A religious person who, I think, is seeking God when he approaches Jesus. The other reason why I love this story and the exchange between um, Nicodemus and Jesus is because we, as human beings can receive this story and it can make it personal, right? And rightfully so. The story is about what it means to be born again. To be born again is deeply personal. But this story takes us one more step. God's image bearers who are born again have their heart, we need to change our heart, reorientate it toward God first. John 3, verses 1 to 16, is first about God before it is about us. We, we take this language, I was born again. It's very common within the evangelical world, and we, we tend to turn that in on ourselves. And this morning, I'm going to make the case known, we need to turn that back out toward God, because only, only when we turn ourselves back toward God, then we can we truly understand ourselves. So, I hope that by the time I'm done preaching this morning, I, I do hope that you'll just like love this passage like just as much as I do. That is my, my hope. And not only that, your love for God just grows as we kind of get into this text. Let me pray because I need God's help, and then let's get into it. Heavenly Father, you are so good, so kind, so loving. 
thank you that through your son you've made a way to take broken people and make them whole because of Christ. As we dive into your word, we come submitted to your authority. So by the power of the Spirit, continue to work on our hearts this morning. My heart being the chief one that needs to be worked on right now. So I pray for my friends this morning who are in front of me, that you indeed be with them as we look at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 3.16 might be the most, I don't know, popular passage in the entire, entire Bible. It's worth repeating. Let me read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Like, when you go to Awana or whatever uh, elementary program exists, it's like the first verse they memorize, right? Uh, you go to Sunday school, like, everyone knows this verse. Uh, Bible mem- memorization programs, everyone knows this verse when they do that. The guy holding the sign in the end zone, right, as the kick goes up, and you see John 3.16, everyone knows, I know what that is, right? You don't need to be a Christian to know John 3.16, Everyone just knows it. At least in the English Standard Version of the Bible, it's easy to say. John 3.16 just kind of rolls off the tongue for God to love the world and so forth. And of course, John 3.16 is packed with meaning. We read about the love of God. We read that the Father had one Son. We read that faith in the Son means a person has what eternal life. This single verse, I think, has received more attention than probably any other verse in the Bible. In light of the attention this verse receives, and rightfully so, right? I don't remember a sermon. I'm sure it exists, but I don't remember a sermon. I've not read a book, and perhaps it's out there, or had a conversation about the context of John 3.16. You think about that? A passage in the Bible we know so well, and yet have we stepped back? Like, okay, what's leading up to this? How are we getting here? Right? In other words, is it possible to better understand John 3.16 if we look at the passage that it's situated in? So instead of pulling one verse out of context from all the other verses, what do we see if the entire passage informs our understanding of John 3.16? The surrounding verses are, are critical. And I would encourage you, just in your own Bible reading, just a point of application, resist the temptation to take a, one verse in the Bible or two verses in the Bible and take it out of context because you begin to lose what that passage means. We understand the context by the surrounding verses. You might read John 3.16 in the context of Jesus teaching the high-ranking Pharisee Nicodemus. All of your Bibles place this header between verse 15 and verse 16, and that's a shame, actually. I wish they wouldn't have done that. I understand why they did, but I wish they wouldn't have done that. 
verse 16 flows right out of verse 15. Both talk about the connection between faith and eternal life. So why in the world do English translations of the Bible impose a break between these two verses? I don't know, and I don't like it. It is not until verse 21 that this preposition comes up, meta means after, is used to indicate a scene change. But there's no scene change here. Therefore, when we read, for God so loved the world, we need to step back and realize Jesus is still teaching Nicodemus. And now he's teaching us. Listen, John 3.16 is a great verse, but has been widely misunderstood because little is done to learn the context and exegesis of the passage. So by the time I'm done this morning, I hope you see the primary focus of verses 1 to 15 and how it fits so well with that beloved verse that we have, John 3.16. Now let's talk about Nicodemus for, for a moment. We know he was a man of authority within the Jewish community. The text tells us that. He was a, a Pharisee and a ruler. That's just verse 1. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is like the ruling council. It's like your city, your city council. They were in charge. In John chapter 7, the Gospel of John, it was the voice of Nicodemus that staved off the Jews who wanted to arrest Jesus. I always found that passage curious, right? Everyone's trying to get after Jesus, and Nicodemus is the one who speaks up and says, hold on, just one moment. And in John 19, Nicodemus helps Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus after he was crucified. Nicodemus even brings the spices for a proper Jewish burial. We cannot know for sure, but from John 3, John 7, and John 19, I think Nicodemus approaches Jesus with a curious and open heart. Some theologians and pastors suggest Nicodemus comes to Jesus actually with hostile intentions. And I've heard it said that Nicodemus is, you know, one of those classic gotcha Pharisees. I disagree. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, we did see Jesus go after the Pharisees, right? Every time the Pharisees attempted to push Jesus into a theological corner, Jesus throws down divine truth on the Pharisees. But Jesus' lengthy exchange with Nicodemus seems different to me. Jesus reveals a lot about himself to Nicodemus. Now, he does throw down divine truth. That's certainly going on here. But I don't think Nicodemus is playing the gotcha game. I don't think that's going, I don't think that's what's what's here. As a matter of fact, Nicodemus, we read, comes to Jesus by night. Now, why would Nicodemus seek out Jesus when everyone's in bed sleeping? I would conjecture that if you want to meet the enemy of your friends, then you don't make a scene, (laughs) right? You find a time and place to meet in secret. I could be wrong, but at least it does not seem to me that Nicodemus approaches Jesus with hostile intentions. Nonetheless, the presence of Nicodemus is a big deal because Nicodemus is a big deal, at least within the Jewish community in the first century. He's kind of like the Pope or a high-ranking cardinal within the Catholic Church. He has authority and he has power. And Nicodemus is about to learn what it means to be saved. Like, that's the crazy thing. 
Think about that one religious guy who seems to have it all figured out, and you can go to him for whatever question you have because he's just a dictionary of the Bible and theological information. That's Nicodemus, and he's about to learn one of the most amazing truths he could ever know. I mean, forget the seminary education. Forget about it. What Jesus is about to say to him is far superior, far more important. His religious world and his theology are going to be rocked by the Lord. Now, may I suggest that all of us, regardless of where we're at spiritually, we can all afford to be rocked once again by this teaching from our Lord Jesus. Once again. In verse 2, Nicodemus affirms Jesus. We read, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, before looking at the response of Christ, I want you to see the bridge that Nicodemus needs to cross. Perhaps it's the same bridge that some of you need to cross this morning by God's grace. Nicodemus rightly says that God is with Jesus. It's a good statement, and he's not wrong. But Nicodemus doesn't go far enough. The bridge he needs to cross is this. Jesus is God. Perhaps the bridge that he needs to cross is best expressed by C.S. Lewis. Nicodemus and all people throughout history need to ask, is Jesus, many of you may know this, is Jesus a lunatic when he speaks here in John 3? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he Lord? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he Lord? If he is a lunatic, if that's what's going on here, if that, if that is who Nicodemus is speaking to in that moment, if Jesus is a lunatic, then I can end this sermon right now. We can all go home and grab some lunch. If he's a liar then we can mark and disregard Jesus. A liar can be more dangerous than the lunatic. However, if Jesus is Lord, then we need to pay attention to what Jesus says in John 3. What is at stake in John 3 is what it looks like to enter into God's kingdom and to know God himself. I'm obviously working off the truth that Jesus is Lord, right? So I'll continue to preach. Uh, therefore, I'm going to ask four questions that kind of logically follow one another, for, about, uh, four questions that follow our passage. Here they are. How can someone see the kingdom of God? It's the first question I want to ask. Number two, how is a person born again? Number three, on what authority or basis does the, does the Spirit apply the will of the Father? Number four, why does God cause people to be born again? Now, these questions are directly related to our text. Here's the first question I'm going to ask Jesus. You know the answer, but let's read in verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 3 is one of the most remarkable statements in the Bible. Jesus is direct, and he urges us to see things through a spiritual lens. The only way for a person to know God is to be born again. Now, translating the Greek word, ganao, 
as born again. That's correct. That's a good way to translate that particular word. The context demands this translation. However, it's really helpful and I think instructive to me that the other possible translation of this Greek word ganao means born from above. Think about that. It means born again. But the other way we can translate that in the New Testament is born from above. When we take them together, Jesus indicates that to see the kingdom of God requires something spiritual from above to take place in a person's present reality. I will ask in a moment how a person is born from above or born again. But first, I want you to see a theme woven throughout all of Scripture. In the Garden of Eden, the physical and the spiritual coexisted together, unpolluted, without sin, right? The two were one and the same. And then in Genesis 3, sin corrupted everything. We know that. Everything has been polluted. And there is a, a spiritual chasm now between God and man. God, in his grace and mercy, has a divine and eternal plan to restore what we have broken. God, in his grace and mercy, and according to his divine plan, is making all things new. And there will be a day when the physical and the spiritual realities will be once again one and the same. And we look forward to that day. We read about that day in the book of Revelation when heaven and earth become one and the same. But until that day, the way for the physical realities of this world to be united to the spiritual realities is to be born again. Is to be born again. In other words, being born again begins to restore the broken relationship between a person and God. Being born again causes you to see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says. Do you want to see the kingdom? Do you want, like, do you want, do you see the kingdom right now? You need to be born again. When you see the kingdom of God, you see and know a loving father, a glorious savior in the son, and a marvelous comforter in the Holy Spirit? So that's the answer to the first question. We need to be born again. Now on to my second question. How is a person born again? The response of Nicodemus tells us he does not see the kingdom yet. Frankly, his response was the same as mine many, many years ago. It's silly to say, actually. At least in my own head, it seems silly. How is it possible for a person to be born a second time? I remember just like reading that and be like, this makes no sense, you know? Biologically speaking, like the logic doesn't hold up. I don't understand. I remember thinking, I don't understand what Jesus is saying. You know, the problem is I didn't have eyes to see. And so I did ask the same question as Nicodemus. Now, there's a point of application for us as we look at Nicodemus, right? And he asks us what we think maybe be a silly question. Even if his question seems ridiculous to us, it was very relevant during his time. The point of application is this. We should be, a bold, we should be really bold to ask good questions in this church, Right? May Redemption Hill be a church where we ask good questions about God, the Bible, the Christian faith. I mean, I pray that this church continues to be a community of people who talk, listen, and discuss the Christian faith. Like, I'm very zealous that we be that kind of church. 
And I'll be bold to say this, growing in the Christian faith demands asking good questions. So yeah, if you're kind of like Nicodemus, be like, do I have to be born out of my mother's womb a second time? Ask the question. Ask the question. After Nicodemus asks a question, Jesus tells him deeper truths about God's kingdom. That's why we have to ask questions so we can get the response. Perhaps Jesus is speaking these deep truths to you this morning. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what in the world does it mean to be born of water and Spirit? I mean, the short answer is, it's called regeneration. Another word for regeneration is rebirth. Think about regeneration as a, as a dead car battery. A dead car battery needs external jump, jumper cables to give that battery juice. So too does the human heart need some juice because the human heart cannot jump start itself. To our ears, being born of water and spirit seems a bit cryptic, right? What do you mean, Jesus? I mean, at least, at least for me. I'm like, huh? But for Nicodemus, he knows precisely what Jesus is saying, which is, which is, which is very interesting to me. He knows his Bible, and he knows what the prophet Ezekiel told about rebirth, which Ryan read this morning, which we did not discuss that, which I trust that's the spirit at work. If you want to know the greater biblical context of John 3, it's right here with the prophet Ezekiel. Hundreds of, hundreds of years before the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, Ezekiel said this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleansiness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. In Judaism, if you are unclean, you need to be cleansed by water. That's the imagery going on here in Nicodemus, coming out of Jesus' mouth and with Nicodemus. Sometimes you got to be cleansed from, from head to toe. This passage has nothing to do with baptism, but Jesus is giving us a picture of how a wicked, sinful heart is regenerated with spiritual water. Jesus mentions water because we're sinners. We're unclean, and divine water needs to cleanse us from head to toe, inside out. As it says in Ezekiel 36.25, we need to be cleansed from our idols. I also want you to notice the verbs in Ezekiel 36. They're all in the first person. These verbs show us the initiative of God to save. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, verse 25. I will give you a new heart, verse 26. I will remove your heart of stone. And God gives a new heart, a heart of flesh, verse 26. I will put my spirit within you. It is God who causes a person to walk in his ways. It says in that text, his statutes. You know, 
I'm not going to ponder on this too long because I will get emotional. But what I think about, you know, 20 some years ago, where I was at, there's no way I could have saved myself. I needed God. I truly needed God. I needed regeneration. I feel like an old man with his glasses thing. All right. Regeneration is a radical change of the heart brought about, as we see in Ezekiel and we see in John 3, brought about by God the Holy Spirit. There's no more incredible heart surgery that can be done than God the Holy Spirit taking your heart of stone and putting back inside of you a heart of flesh. God takes that out and like, nope, I'm going to give you something that's alive and living, the heart of flesh. The work of the Holy Spirit in salvation is God the Holy Spirit applying the will of the Father in God's people. Over the years, um, I've heard two different, multiple pictures that people use to kind of explain John 3 and what it means to be born again. The first picture is of a person who is drowning in the ocean. I remember hearing this early on in in my Christian faith. So we've got a person drowning in the ocean. And God, the lifeguard, throws the life preserver. That person swims to the life preserver and throws their arms over the life preserver and obviously is saved from drowning. When I first heard a pastor explain regeneration this way, something did resonate with me. Absolutely resonated with me. I remember the day, as I was just mentioning, when I was in my bedroom sobbing, kneeling on the ground, clutching this, this navy blue NIV study Bible given to me a couple months prior. And I remember, I, I remember, I will never forget saying to God, if everything in this book is true, then I have, I have no choice, God, but to follow you. I remember all that. I remember swinging my arm over the life preserver, right? But what I didn't know then, but I know now, because I believe it's revealed in Scripture, is that prior to that event, God was doing something in my heart. God was at work. The Holy Spirit was drawing me to himself. I realize now that I was not in the ocean, kicking my legs, attempting you know, to stay alive, right? No. I was at the dead, I was at the bottom of the sea, dead with a heart of stone. And I needed God to come. God came down in his mercy and grace and breathed life and took out that heart of stone put in that heart of flesh. I needed God to will me to life. In, in my opinion, the amazing power of God's grace is seen most clearly, not, 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 not by taking someone who's half alive, but by taking a dead person and giving them life. That is the amazing power of God's grace and salvation. Here's a great statement from an early church father. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus. He says this, And indeed, from the Spirit comes our new birth, and from new birth, our new creation. And from the new creation, our deeper knowledge of the dignity of Him from whom it is derived. 
Gregory traces salvation back to the source of salvation, God himself. uh, Jesus continues to teach about the Spirit when he says, He blows where he wishes, that's verse 8. The Spirit blows where he wishes. wishes. For those born again know that the Spirit is blowing because we hear it. What is the point Jesus is making? Now, there's actually a lot of crazy interpretations of verse 8. It was kind of actually entertaining to read. But at the bare minimum, we can say that the Spirit operates unhindered, unhindered by us, and according to the sovereign will of God. If you try to control the Holy Spirit, you actually attempt to control God. Jesus says, this is verse 8, You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I mean, have you ever tried to catch the wind? (laughs) It looks ridiculous. But you know it's there. Same as with the Holy Spirit. So how can a person be born again? Answer, God the Holy Spirit breathes life on a cold, dead heart, according to the sovereign will of the Father. Now, before moving on to the next question, allow me to be personal for a moment. That was, as I was thinking about, you know, planning out sermons, this particular, I saved this particular story for this particular text because it's really um, personal to me. For years, I have been wrestling with the do- what we call the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace is the shorthand of saying uh, glorious theological doctrines to help us understand how God saves and why. I've wrestled with the implications of John 3 for years. I've wrestled for several reasons. First, I've prayed and cried to God because I have family members who don't know Christ. Right? Just plead with God. A twin brother, two older brothers, a mother and a father, cousins, relatives, friends. I mean, I understand that there's a ma- there are massive and eternal consequences for someone who is not in Christ. So like Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis 32, I've wrestled with God in prayer over and over and over again. I'm just going to go join the psalmist and say, why, oh God? Why me? Why not them? So I've wrestled. And even now I wrestle. Second, I've wrestled with trying to make sense of the fact that billions of people throughout the world do not know Christ. And billions is compounded when you consider history, right? Like, let's ask a question. Why, oh God? I've wrestled with all that and more. And I will continue to wrestle. And if you're like me, I have a few encouragements for you. Number one, wrestling with God can be good if there's a genuine pursuit to know more of God. Wrestling's good. It's not bad. As a matter of fact, it should be encouraged. Number two, If you are a Christian wrestling with God, you wrestle in the grace and mercy of God. You wrestle like me, knowing God has given you, Christian, what you do not deserve, Jesus. It's called grace. You wrestle knowing that God has not poured out his wrath upon you because of sin. That's called mercy. 
The wrath you deserve was applied to the Son. So while you wrestle, you actually also have every reason to rejoice because of what God has done for you. We can rejoice. Now, personal moment over. My personal moment is over, but I have another point of application as we consider John 3 and all the implications. What should our posture be toward God when you have unbelieving family and friends who are not regenerated? What should our posture be? More specifically, how do we pray for our unsaved family and friends, right? Here's what has informed me over the years uh, of being a Christian, not a pastoral ministry, just being a Christian. First, when we pray for family and friends, we need to align our heart with the will of God. We need to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All Christians need to align their heart toward the will of God. Second, we need to pray expectantly, I'm not even sure that's a word, expectantly, that God is going to save. Yes, we plead with God to save our family and friends. Yes, be on your knees and pray. Oh God, regenerate my twin brother Kelly. I pray that in Jesus' name. Plead. When you got done pleading, you get up, you grab a cup of coffee, and you go back and plead some more. Third, we can be at peace knowing all things are in the hands of God. Over the years, I found this passage from Acts to be very comforting and helpful. It's not on the screen. I just put it in last second. It's from Acts 18. Paul's in Corinth. Corinthians are giving him some trouble, giving him the business for preaching the gospel. And then we read this. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, and I quote, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, Paul, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. And here's the key line, folks. For I have many in this city who are my people. You see what God is saying to Paul. Go preach. I'll take care of the rest. Go preach. Go share the gospel. Pray. God will take care of the rest according to his will. At the end of the day, God is sovereign. He is. But we must continue to preach and to pray and to share, to share the gospel. Now, here's the next question. On what authority or basis does the Spirit apply the will of the Father? Right? What authority or basis does the Holy Spirit apply the will of God the Father? It's in verses 11 to 15. Let's read it. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And Jesus is kind of calling out Nicodemus there a little bit. You're not receiving this. That's the problem. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I'm telling you the obvious, Nicodemus, and you want me to tell you about the great spiritual truths? Where no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Parenthetical point, it is fascinating that Jesus speaks in the plural here, right? God's plan, path, and purpose of redemption is thoroughly Trinitarian. I love that. 
I absolutely love that. Now here's the substance. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he is the son of man. We hear these words 2,000 years after the cross, and we're like, well, duh, right? But when Nicodemus hears this from Jesus, he staggers. He's like, what did you just say? Like, I think I heard you say something, but I'm not sure you said it because that didn't sound right. But no, he did say, son of man. He staggers because his mind goes to Daniel 7. Another parenthetical note. This passage is saturated with Old Testament scripture. We already saw Ezekiel. Now we got Daniel 7. I saw in the night in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, ancient of days being eternal, right? And was presented before him. And to whom was given dominion and glory and a kingdom to all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus says, son of man, the Nicodemus, a massive blinking neon sign went off. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he is eternal. Jesus has dominion over all things. And Jesus is to be worshipped by all peoples, nations, and languages. He says, my kingdom is going to last forever. Then Jesus says, new birth is made possible through sacrifice, particularly his sacrifice. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that's Verse 14, which is a reference to Numbers 21, verse 9. Jesus was lifted up on a cross to bear the wrath of God. It is because Jesus was lifted up on the cross that allowed for your heart, Christian, to have life. and allowed the Spirit to apply redemption to the heart. Jesus was also lifted up in his resurrection. Jesus has shown that he has the power over death in the grave. The power of the resurrected Christ is the same power at work to turn hearts of stone, to take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. That's the power of the resurrection. Therefore, we can say with assurance what we read at the end of verse 15, that all who believe in Christ will have eternal life. That is so freeing. That is so freeing. I have one more question I want to answer. Why does God cause people to be born again? Right? Why? I'm asking this final question to help us to see the motive of God to save, which is connected to his character. Perhaps you notice, but I let out this sermon with the answer. Love. Love is why God causes people to be born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For God so loved the world is why God effectuates in his image bearers to be born again. Here's the reality. There is not a person who has ever lived other than Jesus that does not deserve the righteous wrath and judgment of God. But out of love, but out of love, God goes to the bottom of the ocean and pours out grace and mercy on dead hearts, on hearts of stone. Love is the supreme virtue of God, and he shares that love with his people. 
in love, God the Father sent his son into the world, right? We see that in John 3.16. In love, the son was the final and ultimate sacrifice for sins. That's John 15, verse 13. In love, the Holy Spirit moves upon the hearts of man to reveal Christ. Listen, a cursory look at history tells a story of humanity bent on walking away from God and going its own way. Take you five seconds of, of looking at world history just to realize that. I mean, I can go to the Old Testament and make a case that the Jews were bent on walking away from God over and over by following, following idols and other gods. And the reality, we deserve the wrath of God because we keep walking away, right? Yet in love and through love, God chose to restore what we broke. What we broke by causing his people to be born again, to be born from above. I have one more thought in one, in one moment, but I want you to hear this for me. And I, and I pray this is true, that the gospel of Jesus Christ never gets old for you. It doesn't become a relic that we just kind of put above the fireplace that collects dust. But it is indeed our life. And so here in the gospel, over and over and over is a good thing. And because I'm forgetful. If you're like me, you're forgetful as well. And we need to be reminded of these deep truths so we can marvel at God's goodness and we can revel in his love. I'll end with these thoughts. In the dark of night, Nicodemus approaches Jesus. Jesus tells him some of the most precious truths his ear will ever encounter. And then in John 19, we read that Nicodemus helps Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus. I don't know how Nicodemus' story unfolds after that. I don't know. He might be among the saints in heaven. Here's what I do know. I'm looking at a bunch of people who have every reason to rejoice. Every reason to rejoice. I am looking at a bunch of people who rightly worship the God of heaven and earth. We rejoice in worship because what God has done to cause you and me to be born again, to be born from above. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.